Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, before we get into this episode, I wanted to tell you all about another podcast. It's actually one that I guested on not too long ago. Uh, It's called Pantsuit Politics. I was on there with the hosts, Sarah and Beth. We had a a really great conversation. Um, I I really grew to like them a lot and I've started uh, actually listening to their show since because I I so enjoyed the conversation. Uh, As hard as it is to engage in political conversations, it's important. And Pantsuit Politics is a nationally acclaimed podcast that's dedicated to having political conversations that inspire rather than depend us, which may sound kind of familiar to you if you like this show. The hosts, Sarah and Beth, are Kentucky moms, lawyers, and friends who take a different approach to the news than you're used to hearing from traditional outlets. They blend hard facts with important social and cultural undercurrents so that you don't miss the big picture. Uh, when I was on their show, uh, we had a whole conversation about accents and about how uh, you know I have just a very light accent, they have a Kentucky accent, but that a lot of people aren't used to hearing progressive things come out of mouths that speak the way ours do. So listen to Pantsuit Politics every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. Uh, We are joined uh, by our producer, Grace Lynch, today. Say hi, Grace. Hey, guys. And um, we, at the end of this episode, uh, are going to be joined by former, and we believe future, member of Congress uh, from Ravi's home district of Staten Island, Mr. Max Rose. That'll be at the end of the episode. Uh, so stick around for that. Before we get around to anything else, Ravi, I have to ask you, when you left Kansas City after the devastating Bills loss and Chiefs victory a couple weeks ago, you were, you were rendered mute. Like you did not speak for the rest of that evening. We were a little concerned about you. We talked a little bit the next day. Have you begun speaking again since then? I have. And a couple things about this. I was bummed by the game. Obviously, it was really sad. And, and I, as, as I've expressed to you, I, I just want our team to win once in my lifetime. But then, you know, you bring things to perspective, like it's just a football game and it's just a team. And being me, I've I made a I sat in a coffee shop in Kansas City, I actually extended my stay. And I like sat there and I was like, I said to myself, I love Kansas City. Like, I love the majority 54 listeners from Kansas City. I first came to Kansas City in a life-changing moment when I got the Truman Scholarship in college, which changed my life. So every time I go through that airport, I've had, like, these positive memories. And I was like, I cannot let myself leave with negative feelings of Kansas City. So I sat there. I moved my flight, sat in a coffee shop, and I was like, I am going to like use this moment as like a dividing line. And basically I've been like Bradley Cooper and Limitless since where I was like, I'm just going to use this period of time when the Bills are not playing to just be the most productive, positive version of myself. And then I will associate my trip to Kansas City with the beginning of that period of my life. And that's essentially what I've done. 
Well, that explains what happened to us the following week is you became a fan and then we were cursed. And that's why my team has lost too. So thanks a lot. I re- no, I'm just kidding. Um, I do no, have this good. weird feeling where I was rooting for Kansas City because of our fans and majority 54 and because of you. But there was a part of my brain that, that was almost like the lobster in the pot dragging you down. There was a part of me that was a little happy when you guys lost that, that I didn't have to deal with a happy fan version of you because I would be so <laughs> jealous. And I would secretly resent you uh, over it. It's all right. We, uh, we've already won, so I'm very resilient. It's all right. Great, great, but on the bright side, we literally saw the greatest football game ever played. That's true. And we got to spend time with each other, and life is oh, yeah. short, and that's what this is all really about, Jason. This is why I'm obsessed with longevity listeners, by the way, is because I have to live a long life in order to see the Bills win the Super Bowl. Wow. Honestly, that that finally checks out for me, which is <laughs> nice. I've been wondering what's been driving this, and I'm happy to now know. Uh, all right, with that, Ravi, what's going on? Well, we've been talking about Joe Rogan for a while on this podcast, and I think it has reached a crescendo in the public square right now where there have been calls to take some kind of corrective action on Rogan. I wouldn't say censor necessarily, but their doctors wrote a letter. Um, Interestingly, it wasn't all medical doctors, I think it turns out, but there was a group of doctors who wrote a letter saying that Rogan was spreading misinformation. Neil Young pulled his music from Spotify. There was a little bit of a snowball effect and a lot of scrutiny on Spotify as a company. Spotify came out and clarified their COVID-19 misinformation policy in kind of like a platitudinal corporate statement and said that they, they... basically haven't been applying their own standards of like slapping a label on uh, COVID-19 misinformation or like any content that deviates from public health guidance on COVID-19. And then Rogan weighed in just these past few days to talk about how he's internalizing all this. Let's listen to a short clip from, from his statement. I wanted to make this video, first of all, because I think there's a lot of people that have a distorted perception of what I do, maybe based on sound bites or based on headlines of articles that are disparaging. Um, the podcast has been accused of spreading dangerous misinformation. I do not know if they're right. I don't know because I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I'm just a person who sits down and talks to people and has conversations with them. Do I get things wrong? Absolutely, I get things wrong, but I try to correct them. Whenever I get something wrong, I try to correct it because I'm interested in telling the truth. I'm interested in finding out what the truth is. And I'm interested in having interesting conversations with people that have differing opinions. No, uh, No hard feelings towards Neil Young and definitely no hard feelings towards Joni Mitchell. I love her too. I love her music. Chucky's in Love is a great song. I don't know what else I can do differently other than try harder to get people with uh, differing opinions on right afterwards. I do think that that's important and do my best to make sure that I've researched these topics. Again, I'm not trying to promote misinformation. I'm not trying to be controversial. I've, I've never tried to do anything with this podcast other than just talk to people and have interesting conversations. It's really hard for me because I don't listen to that podcast very much. So I don't have the context of like, really understand like i i see clips of it occasionally but i don't really have a sense for like just how laden it is with misinformation so like when i see a two-minute clip of him saying that it you know my brain goes well that that seems like a pretty reasonable response but i'm very open to being you know set right on that first of all i want to shout out that also folk legend Joni mitchell also pulled her music from the platform neil young doesn't get all the credit here 
Johnny's well, Ro- also. Rogan didn't leave her out. He was like, no, Ro- specifically Rogan like, I love props. Joni Mitchell. Yeah, which I actually found very endearing. Yeah. I think that what I found challenging about this clip, though, is that he says like, hey, look, I don't know if they're right or wrong. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. And then immediately afterwards is like, do I always get things right? No. And I immediately try to fix it. But he's not trying to fix the misinformation as it relates to COVID. He's explicitly saying, like, I still can't possibly weigh in here. But if I'm wrong, I will fix it, which to me implies that he doesn't think that he's wrong and he doesn't think that what they shared was wrong. So while this message seems well-intentioned, well-meaning, pretty neutral even, just kind of like, I'm just a guy doing a thing. (laughs) It's like, you're not just a guy doing a thing. We can't go down another, like, Facebook meta, like, this is for people to come together. We're not a news platform. It's like, you got to own it. I'm just a caveman thought out after millions of years, and I don't know much, (laughs) but I know about negligence, and I know that my client is entitled. Like, yeah, it's a deep cut for people. I thought his response, especially when you juxtapose it with Spotify, was genuine. And he could have gone a different route, right? He could have done the the F the libs, like double down and all that and could have gotten away with that and riled up his audience almost barstool sports style like Dave Portnoy does. And he didn't do that. He easily could have done it. And I take him at his word that he's trying harder. Part of work that we're doing at a lost debate. I actually listened to the four hour interview with Jordan Peterson that happened a couple of days ago with Rogan. And one thing I will say is- Can, Hold, hold on, hold on. No means- What? How? How do you have time- that is amazing. He's not watching because uh, I'm not listening Jason. to the Bills. I, you should see <laughs> how incredible. many Bills podcasts I normally listen to. But I actually did a video, okay. and our friends at Midas actually amplified it for us and all that. And I, I basically went through and I critiqued a one part of the interview, not all four hours, but a part about climate change that Jordan Peterson did. But I also shouted out, and this was before Rogan's statement. I said a couple of days ago, I said I see a difference in Rogan. The way he was pushing Peterson in that interview, he was really aggressive, but in his own Rogan-esque way to be like, hey, stop for a second. Explain what you just said. No, that doesn't sound right. And he was like, I thought, pretty effectively in the climate change part, uh, critiquing Peterson in a way that, as we talk about on this podcast, it's really hard to fact check people in real time. And I thought he did a pretty decent job on wait, that. Wait, where is Rogan on climate change? I don't even know. He he basically started the interview with Peterson saying, he's like, I'm going to have somebody on in a couple of weeks who's like a, you know, alarmed about climate change and I'm reading their book and then I'm reading some other things. And he was basically, Rogan was saying, I'm trying to figure this out. Like at the beginning of the interview, it's just like an aside. It wasn't what the interview with Peterson was supposed to be about. But Peterson being overconfident, Jordan Peterson is like, I'm now an expert on climate change and then spent the whole beginning of the interview lecturing Rogan about climate change. And Rogan was basically, you could basically see the gears turning in Rogan's head where he's like, He's he's noticing Peter's overconfidence and some like really specious arguments that Peterson's making. And although Rogan admittedly is like, I'm not sure where I come out on this, which we could be frustrated like that somebody hasn't come out on the issue of climate change. But my feeling about all this is like growth, like, right, Rogan's going nowhere, right? I take him at his word that he's growing as, as a person and he's genuine and trying to figure this out. And I could say that at least anecdotally as somebody who as part of Lost Debate is like watching this very closely, like... I've noticed a difference in him. And if he genuinely is trying to do better, that's huge. I don't think we should lower the bar for him because although he is a regular guy getting into this and like maybe he was small and now he's a juggernaut and he has to update his systems, uh, like we, we shouldn't baby him about this stuff. But if he genuinely is trying to get better, I think that's good for society. And you're not going to get that statement from Tucker Carlson. We should always applaud people who are trying to do better. And I agree that we shouldn't, though, move the goalpost. I think that we are, though, regardless, giving him way too much 
cushion because I feel I feel like what's so tricky about his show and I would say, you know, makes him more dangerous than a Tucker Carlson is that a lot of what he talks about, like, isn't overtly political. And then, you know, two hours in, they're like, by the way, climate change isn't real. And then they move on. And it's like that to the passive listener who's doing the dishes, who's working out, who's walking their dog. Suddenly they're like, oh, and they just move on. And there isn't a challenge. There isn't a constructive thought put into it like tucker carlson's always making an argument you could yeah. at least say that like he's very clear about what he intends for you to walk away with and joe rogan it's this like insidious drip 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 of either right-wing talking points misogynistic talking points that like are reaching a very broad audience that is not being instructed to think very critically about what they're hearing so i am happy if he wants to push back and make that more engaging I don't think that that absolves him, though, of giving a kind of open space free platform for insidiously dangerous ideas to just kind of trickle out and then be like, oh, I'm trying, man, but it's hard. It's like I don't I don't have a lot of sympathy for that. <laughs> OK, so here's my question, then, which is like you've got the people who have attempted like the boycott Spotify thing, which I assumed from the beginning was not going to go anywhere because he is like their biggest that, and they also paid him so much right money. like they're, they're not, pot no. committed on joe rogan so i'm not criticizing people who did that i'm just saying like i i've assumed from the beginning that was not going to be like an effective strategy on on that although it does appear that it got his attention and he's saying things like at the end of the clip we played like you know i i guess i could do a better job at like having people on who counter that like after them but, but that's it, also both sidesism on issues oh, that sure. like aren't both sides well, that's true and climate mm-hmm. being an excellent example of that like th- yeah. those two things those are not equal sides of the debate well I- i'm just saying like it seems like he it, they got his attention and whether that should be like whether we should say like oh good job joe rogan is another question but it, it seems like like by neil young and journey mitchell making noise like he at least went i have to i have to say something that makes it seem like i'm doing something like so that's not nothing but the reason i ask is like so w- what should the rest of us do like if if this is a person with a huge platform who uh is evolving in his beliefs doesn't seem to have like a, a ben shapiro or tucker carlson-esque a clear motive for doing things other than like being entertaining and growing his, his audience. I'm not sure how we should react to that. In my case, for instance, like I've got a book coming out in July. It's a message about mental health that there's probably a lot of people in his audience are struggling with mental health. And I would want them to hear the message. I've got friends who are like, you know, even if you're invited on in July, you should not go on his podcast. I'm not sure that I shouldn't like, so how do we approach it? Well, and shout out to Mike Schur, you know, twice uh, guest on this podcast, his book, How to Be Perfect, actually has a chapter about this, which is like, how do you effectively respond as a consumer to these types of situations? And he almost literally describes this situation ahead of time and essentially saying, if you boycott one thing, what are you getting, right? So in this case, you boycott Spotify, you're going to Apple, you know, Foxconn plans for people committing suicide, you know, being complacent about the Uyghur genocide, like that's better. Like, so- you know, and that's where and they're celebrating Joni Mitchell and Neil, you go to Apple now, they're, oh, Neil Young and Joni Mitchell are here. You know, it gets to the whole Ricky Gervais, like Hollywood has no reason to be sanctimonious. He said, if you, if ISIS had a streaming platform, you'd say, call your agent. It's not an easy answer. And I like, I, I'm kind of both sizing this myself in the sense that I, I totally agree, Grace, that we shouldn't lower the bar. But part of it is like, what influence do you have? I almost think that our audience should treat this Rogan situation like a, 
like a metaphor for what we're doing with our families, right? It's like, are we in the conversation or out? Do we shun this person or do we try to influence them? And do are we optimistic that they can change? And I'm taking the optimistic that they can change approach. There's Brene Brown had a really awesome response to this and and why she decided to stay with Spotify. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but she to me nailed as somebody who's been working really hard in the misinformation space over the past few months, even outside of this podcast. She said, both censorship and misinformation are threats to public health and democracy. Rather than falling prey to believing that we have to tolerate one to protect against the other, our collective well-being is best served when we approach debates and discourse with curiosity, critical thinking, and a healthy skepticism of false dichotomies. This gets to what Grace is saying, the false dichotomies, both of this question of censorship versus misinformation, but also false dichotomies sometimes on these questions, like the both sides-ism. And I'm frustrated too. Like I don't think there's two sides to the question of climate change. But he does make a point about certain things, like the Wuhan theory. Like he had somebody on early on Wuhan, and part of the reason why people gravitate towards him is I think sometimes people feel like there are legitimate questions that aren't discussed in the media enough. And so there's like this sense of like he's he's willing to engage in ideas that others aren't that sometimes turn out to be true. Yeah, I think where I come down on all this is like we shouldn't ignore it. It's like it's like what this podcast is all about. Right. Is there's a portion of the left that we're just as left as that portion. But it's a tactical difference. Like, I think that the difference is people are like, you, you know, they believe in shunning. They believe in. all, And I just think that we believe in engaging and look like you know, Owen in or whatever it is to, you know, most of the primetime, you know, lineup at Fox, like there's little point in engaging there anymore. Um, I don't think you can say that about the audience that's listening to Rogan. I don't think you can say that it is beyond persuadable. I think that that is precisely the why. I don't think that this attention that Joe Rogan is currently facing should dissipate. I think that it caught fire because of a highly contentious topic like vaccines. But he does have a persuadable middle and a middle that I do think we often talk about of like perhaps a largely male audience that like usually tends to identify with Republicans just because they think they should. But like not because their values are necessarily really grounded in any sort of specific policy or, you know, rigor, but it's more of a like kind of cultural identity And I think that because that is a susceptible and a persuadable audience, that we should be very critical and concerned about the messages that are being portrayed to that audience. And I think it is correct for there to be alarm when something like climate change is both sided on the show, even if he does a good job of pushing back. So because there is a viable audience here, I think that's all the more reason to be really thoughtful and critical of the kinds of conversations that are happening on that show. So I don't think that criticism in this instance is a call for cancellation. There's just a another like standard of accuracy that I do think it is mm-hmm. fair to hold him to. Well, it's it's you can't rage against a machine when you're the machine. And I think he's learning this now. He's not little Joe Rogan against the you know mighty Goliath anymore. He's Goliath. And you could see him figuring this out. We have more fact-checking systems in place at Lost Debate or even on Majority 54 than he has on the largest show in the world. You, and you could tell that's true. And at some point he needs to 
uh, he or now, I mean, this was a yesterday problem, but like he needs to build fact checking and proper guest booking and vetting and these all these types of systems. And I don't think that will degrade the quality of his show one bit. It'll probably improve it. Well, and one thing I'd add uh, to your point, Grace, about the the aspect of this where people listen to him and they think, oh, well, you know, this is like men, men listen to him and go, oh, okay, well, what comes out of the show? Like, that's what men think, right? And it's what Anat Shankar Osorio uh, said to us a couple of weeks ago about social proof is proof, right? Like when people see that and they see it over and over again, they go, well, I guess that's what it is. And it reminds me of when I was secretary of state, I was really big on going on sports talk radio in Kansas City and St. Louis. And at first, my communications team was like, they just figured, and they weren't totally wrong. They were like, Jason just likes to talk about sports, whatever. But over time, everybody could see that there was another reason that made a lot of sense, which is, look, that was a, a mostly Republican audience. It was mostly men who opt to listen to sports instead of other news. And I wasn't going on there and, and talking politics very often at all, but I was, you know, as a candidate, becoming a known uh, quantity to those people. And I, you know, I was just using the fact that I, I could, I could speak and keep up with these hosts and talk about baseball and football and all that stuff. And, and that's why like Democrats need to make sure that we don't give Joe Rogan license or incentive to just go be Ben Shapiro, because it's just like, it's just like 2016. If you tell people over and over again, that they're not your voters, they will eventually believe you. And if we Mm -hmm. tell people over and over again, that if you listen to Joe Rogan, you're not a Democrat, people will believe you. And then he'll just, he'll just do what any politician does, which is go to where his audience, go to where his constituency is. I actually view him as both like a risk and an opportunity for where we are right now as Democrats, because I actually prefer a world where he is the juggernaut that is responsible for more of the right wing content than Fox News. Now, the the risk is ultimately higher just because I think his appeal to peel off Democratic voters and, and independents is higher, but he's got more integrity. Uh, than Fox News. To me, that is obvious. And so like, whereas Tucker Carlson gets on every day and is like, literally, I am for the party. Joe Rogan does not do that. Joe Rogan is like pro Bernie. Like, it's like, he's like a weird guy. And I actually see him as somebody who evolves over time and doesn't get up every day and be like, I need to fly the flag of the Republican Party. And that makes him both like a risk for Democrats because he then like his genuineness, as I see it, which I'm not, none of us are in his head. So none of us know for sure. That either apparent or real genuineness peels people off and can persuade people. But also, if it is true, means that he can evolve and be less predictable in a way that would be helpful down the line. Well, the difference is freedom uh, of movement within their ideology, right? Like if Tucker Carlson came on TV tomorrow and was like, you know what? I've been wrong uh, about, you know, I've been wrong about affirmative action. And I now agree with Joe Biden on affirmative action. It he might not be able to keep his show because he's he didn't create his audience. His audience came to him. And if they put somebody else in that spot, they'll go to that person. If Joe Rogan goes on tomorrow and is like, I was wrong about vaccines, I don't think he loses hardly anybody because they're there for Joe Rogan. And and that that's what it comes down to. It's that it's about money. Like he's not going to lose money by saying what he thinks. Now, we got to be careful not to create a situation where he has a constituency no different than Tucker Carlson's and he's just got to play a part. 
If you've been listening to this show for a while, you've probably heard us talk about our Helix mattresses. I love my mattress. It's dramatically improved my sleep. But one thing that is so exciting to report is that they have left the bedroom. Well, in in reality, they're still in the bedroom, but they have also started making sofas. Uh, and they just launched a new company called Allform, and they're ready making the best sofas we've ever seen. Uh, Ravi, one of the things you do on Instagram is you frequently just take pictures of your apartment. We've done some rearranging lately, you've probably seen. Yeah, yeah. Going back to the theme of you seem to have endless time compared to somebody with two children. Yeah. Uh, but it often features your Allform sofa. And look, there's, there's a reason that you love yours, that we love ours. Uh, it's the easiest way that you can customize a sofa using premium materials and at a fraction of the cost of traditional stores. They got armchairs and love seats all the way up to an eight-seat sectional. So to find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash majority54. And Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash majority54. Maybe it's eggs, maybe it's almonds, maybe it's the unsuspecting banana or carrot. If you struggle with common symptoms like bloating, stomach aches, migraines, or indigestion, and wonder whether they could be related to food, the Everlywell Food Sensitivity Test may help you find more clarity and guide a two-part elimination diet by measuring your reactivity to 96 common foods. Everlywell at-home lab tests give you physician-reviewed results and personalized insights so you can take action on your health and wellness all at an affordable and transparent cost. They ship your at-home lab straight to you with everything needed for a simple sample collection, and they give you a prepaid shipping label, and you can mail it back to a certified lab. And in just days, your physician-reviewed results and actionable insights are sent to your device, and over 1 million people have trusted EverlyWell with their at-home lab testing. And for listeners of the show, EverlyWell is offering a special discount of 20% off an at-home lab test at everlywell.com slash majority54. That's everlywell.com slash majority54 for 20% off your at-home lab test. Everlywell.com slash majority54. Well, let's talk about the Supreme Court. Justice Breyer, thank God, uh, has announced his retirement insane that this is the situation we have in is where people just have to decide they're going to leave these lifetime appointments, but that's just the way it is. And there's been a lot of speculation as to who Biden would pick, a lot of attention to a promise he has previously made to nominate a black woman. People are attacking him for that. Why don't we start there? Uh, Because I don't think there's much in terms of the court shifting here in terms of progressive ideology as replacing a liberal with a liberal. Uh, We could all be happy that this is not going to be in the hands of McConnell. So that's great. But there's this question of who he should pick and whether this promise he made, Biden made, was problematic or not. What do we think about that? So I think that the way people need to talk about this is that we need to make sure that we do not in any way accept the premise of the other side's argument about qualifications and that we don't cede any ground on qualifications. The Supreme Court of the United States has since its inception, lacked the perspective of a black woman. And that's an important perspective. It it is an incredibly important perspective. And that is why adding a black woman to the court is so important and why being a black woman is an important qualification among many important qualifications uh, for this. And I just don't see how you look at the Supreme Court of the United States having never had a black woman's perspective and reach any conclusion other than being a black woman is probably a pretty important qualification. Well, there have been 115 Supreme Court justices, all but seven have been white men. 
Uh, <laughs> that sucks <laughs> so <crazy>. much. <laughs> uh, that is so comically bad. It's crazy. My position on this is absolutely incoherent. So I'm going to announce that ahead of time. I don't love the promise, but I absolutely think he had to pick a black woman and I support that. And this makes no sense. And save the, the tweets, people. I understand that this makes no sense, but I'll try to explain it. And if you read the, we're going to talk a little bit about this Brian Flores situation in the NFL, and it'll come full circle because I think a little bit of what happens in these situations is people get frustrated by this very conversation that's happening, which is you're being picked for your identity, not for your qualifications. And then it, people feel like they're being undermined. And I've had a lot of conversations with people in my life about this over the past week, both about the Brian Flores thing, which we're going to talk about, and about this. And I get that this is incoherent because the promise is important because people are frustrated and they need to hear from a candidate for office that they're going to do this. It's just a shitty situation to be in that you're underrepresented in institutions of power, that you need that promise in the first place. And then when you're being picked for the position, the conversation becomes about the fact that it's about your identity, not your qualifications. It is an absolute catch-22. It sucks. But I, I, don't, I don't think it is a catch-22 because I think it is framed as one. But I actually think that to Jason's point, your identity can be a qualification. It's, it's I think, the difference between the word identity and the word perspective. Because, um, you know, Clarence Thomas, it, identity black man perspective from which he comes at, uh, you know, analyzing the constitution, interpreting the law is, you know, I'm not going to say it is not that of a black man, but I will say that it is not representative of the majority of, of black justices, black attorneys. I mean, it is far more, far more similar to the perspective of the other 115 white men who have been on the court. So, so I think perspective is, is an important, um, term there. There is this monopolizing quality when we start talking about racial identity that I find rather infuriating that we can't think of it as an attribute that like implies a lived experience, a life perspective in most instances, and therefore has inherent value and also is not wholly consuming. Yeah, mm -hmm. I agree yeah. with that. And, and that's and but like so what we're saying here is that like regardless, Biden's going to pick a justice whose jurisprudence reflects his perspective on the law. And let's add this perspective we don't have. I mean, so when you talk to somebody about this, you say, look, it's going to be a liberal. He's, he's a liberal. He's going to nominate a liberal conservative is going to nominate a conservative. The question is, what are the qualifications in terms of from what vantage point do they arrive at their liberalism? Yeah. Yes. That's a but, but way here's, to say that. I, so to be clear, I actually agree with picking a black woman. I, I, part of what I'm doing is trying to air a little bit about like these critiques. But but there is this question of what's a valid perspective and who represents the black community, right? Like, Although if you were to ask Clarence Thomas, he's pretty eloquent on this question as to why he thinks he represents the black community. And I take him at you know, his word that he comes at it honestly. And he has a whole story as to why his conservatism is a reflection of what it means to be black. And that's why I think like these questions of identity and perspective are challenging is that who's to say like who is a better representative of a community? And I think like and this is where I, I, have, I have trouble with this discussion is I think like Democrats like to say our like our and I mean like there's a very narrow definition of our 
kind of person of color is acceptable, whereas other person is not legitimate in representing communities of color. And I think that's dangerous. I think if I were to have this argument with somebody right now, I think what I would say to just boil it down is the Supreme Court of the United States is an institution that in the past has done things like come to the legal conclusion that Mr. and Mrs. Scott, uh, you know, former slaves, uh, are actually property. Uh, and that there's no way that you, you can't come to the conclusion that having a progressive black woman on that court might not only have added an additional vote against that, but uh, in fact have convinced uh, you know, the, uh, the other justices uh, to see things differently. If they had a coworker who was having those. Now, I know that that's a fantastical idea and that you need a time machine and several other, you know, things to make happen. Uh, but my point is like, you just can't ignore that. That, that. that is a perspective that over the course of many, many decisions, that's just a sorely lacking perspective. This is related to something else that just dropped yesterday, which is Brian Flores, who was the coach of the Miami Dolphins for a few seasons, very successful coach. I think he had the first uh, two winning seasons in a row since something like 2003. I might not be exactly right on those dates. And when he was fired before any of the stuff I'm about to describe happened, most people who know anything about the NFL were like, this is an excellent coach. It is baffling that he was fired from his job after two winning seasons with the Dolphins. And then he dropped yesterday, the first day, of February, first day of Black History Month, he dropped a class action lawsuit against the NFL alleging, among other things, discrimination. I don't say this often, but this is a 58-page legal complaint, and I think it's worth reading uh, for listeners. It goes through the entire history of race in the NFL, and you will learn things in this document that are just jaw-dropping. Some of them are objectively true, some of them are allegations, but he alleges that essentially the, the NFL has been discriminating against African-Americans in the head coaching and assistant coaching and, and general manager front office hiring process. Let me read you a little bit of, from the beginning of this complaint. Uh, and this is from the complaint. In certain critical ways, the NFL is racially segregated and is managed much like a plantation. It's 32 owners, none of whom are black, profits substantially from the labor of NFL players, 70% of whom are black. The owners watch the games from atop NFL stadiums in their luxury boxes, while the majority black workforce puts their bodies on the line every Sunday, taking vicious hits and suffering debilitating injuries to their bodies and their brains, while the NFL and its owners reap billions of dollars. And then they go on to quote some really damning statistics. Only one of the NFL's 32 teams employs a black head coach. Only four of the NFL's 32 teams employs a black NFL coordinator. And, you know, they're stats like that. And then they go on to say these numbers come from a pool of players that is approximately 70% black. You and I were texting before about talking about this as part of the Supreme Court conversation because this goes in the category we've recently invented of things that are political that don't seem political. Uh, and, and to me, you know, Nick Wright actually had uh, a great take on this. Uh, he's on Fox Sports 1, Kansas City guy. The most frustrating thing for me, Wilds, is this, that the response to anything like this from folks that don't want to see what is clearly in front of their faces. Well, you just gotta, you just wanna hire the best person for the job. Of course you do, of course you do. But it is the implication, and you see this across fields, that hey, okay. why are white people, mostly white males, at the top of almost every field in America? Well, it must be meritocracy. 
Like, the uh, say that thing out loud. Think about any industry. And it's like, even in sports, where you can't be like, well, they, you know, white people just have more access. No, black guys all over the league. And yet still, when it gets to, as Broussard said, the positions where it's like, okay, but we need a real smart, cutting-edge guy, there's a clear ceiling on what the vast majority of NFL ownership believes black people are equipped to do. Essentially, Nick's point is, you know, statistically, it makes no sense. Like, it, it, it statistically makes no sense that you would have this low of a representation and that the only way, the only way to have that sort of statistical disproportionate representation of white people is to reach the conclusion that too many white people reach, which is, oh, yeah, you know, I got here on my own. It has nothing to do with anything else. And that, I think, goes right back to me. That goes right back to the point about the Supreme Court and that it being a qualification, but it not even needing to be a qualification, just simply being the fact that it's not the case that these other people were just the most qualified. They were just the most white. And I think of the most damning uh, things that I've seen in the reports about this that I think circles back to this perfectly is Flores's allegation that the owner of the Dolphins offered him $100,000 for every loss. Like if he would lose on purpose so that they could, you know, get a better draft pick. For those who don't know, the team that has the worst record gets the the first opportunity to pick new players the, the, the next year, people coming out of college. So saying to him, I want you to lose on purpose. And what I think is implicit in that is he's saying, even when he says two things in there. One, he says, when I've been interviewed, it has often been that I have found out that they interviewed me after they had already chosen somebody. So they were just pretending to interview me because they didn't really want me. And two, he's saying when I did get a job, they were saying we want to lose right now. So it doesn't matter who our coach is. So let's go ahead and have a black coach and then let's make them lose. Let's pay, let's try and get them to lose on purpose, which only perpetuates the idea that he would be less qualified. That's total unfair bullshit. So I covered this topic and the effect of the Rooney rule pretty extensively while I was at 538 producing their sports podcast. So I just want to give a shout out to my former colleagues uh, over there, particularly Neil Payne, who have done an extensive amount of reporting on this topic. And I recommend reading a lot of what they have written because it's still wildly relevant today, including like a five-part plan to fix the NFL's coaching diversity problem and a reflection on why the Rooney Rule is ineffective. And the Rooney Rule, to be specific, is that all NFL teams are required to interview candidates of color for every position. And what Flores is is alleging here is that in the case of speaking with the New York Giants, They had already selected a white coach and then met with him afterwards and kind of put on this like charade of an interview, essentially to like check the box of the Rooney rule. But he was never seriously being considered. Yeah. And same thing with the Broncos, he alleges. Yeah. Yes. Same thing with the Broncos. He said Elway showed up hungover to the interview and disheveled and and, and late. As a Chiefs fan, I have no problem believing that because (laughs) he used to just. Anyway, not an Elway fan because of his success against us. Continue, please. But but just that. This is this is an issue that is most acutely visible at head coach, but it trickles all the way down to the, like the lack of offensive coordinators that are black men. But then even looking down at college, like there is just there is not a successful pipeline for candidates of color to reach these positions because they are stymied every step of the way. Yeah. And it is like a truly systemic systematic and systemic issue that runs throughout the league. And it does contribute to this, what I was really 
thrilled to read that he points out, but this like grotesque dynamic within the NFL. And I say this as someone who watches and enjoys the NFL greatly, but it is gross that it is a bunch of white men in booths watching predominantly men of color smash into each other, not providing them health care for the rest of their lives, by the way. If they get hurt, that's on them and profiting off of it. It, I mean, genuinely, it often reminds me of like scenes from Django Unchained, which I know is like a pretty vicious comparison. But that I feel like we it is the like evolved and elaborate capitalized version. But there is a really gross dynamic there. And it's clear that these men are held to a completely different standard than their white colleagues, especially when the league is so obsessed with these like young white male coaches, the Sean McVay's, the Kyle Shanahan's, and you're just like... Dude, Josh McCown is about to get the Texans job, and people don't know football, don't know what that means, but he is not qualified for that job. A guy who's never held a coaching position, period, uh, is about to get that job. Well, one of the people that you just mentioned, Grace, is a head coach because their dad was a head coach. Yes. I mean, it's (laughs) nepotism. I mean, Bill Belichick's son is on the coaching staff. he He took Flores' place. And, you know, to Belichick's credit, I mean, he he helped Flores rise and Belichick's at the middle of this. He's like, you know, he he's <laughs> the, the, the complaint starts with texts from Bill Belichick, which are hilarious because he thought he was texting the Bills offensive coordinator who got the job. But it turned out to be Flores because it was two Bryans he knew. So he's texting the wrong Brian. It's worth reading, everybody. Trust me. Also, I'm I'm sorry, but the punctuation choices from Bill Belichick. Can we just take a moment? I was to struck appreciate? by that too. They're so funny. Just that that man uses so many exclamation points. He or comes like, out ahead, I think, on this the one. Giants. I also just love. I love and and you'll in in the text message. Basically, Belichick thinks he's texting Brian Dayball, the Bills' offensive coordinator, who got the Giants' job and who used to work for Belichick. But he's texting Brian Flores, the other Brian, who also used to work for Belichick, who did not get the job. So basically, he's like, "Congrats on the." job but then Flores is like whoa i didn't i didn't know that i got the job basically it's confusing and then bill checks like oh shit i fucked this up he literally writes that in the text which is good for him for owning that but i'll quote one part of this complaint that i think is notable they say the rooney rule and to remind you listeners this is the rule that says that you uh, it started with saying you must interview at least one african-american candidate for each head coaching position but now it, it means much more it's down to assistants and uh, general manager choices. And I think now you have to interview two people of color for each head coaching position. And this is what the complaint has to say. The Rooney rule is also not working because management is not doing the interviews in good faith. And it therefore creates a stigma that interviews of black candidates are only being done to comply with the Rooney rule rather than in recognition of the talents that the black candidates possess. This is like a classic situation of let's pretend for a second that the Rooney Rule is created in good faith, which I think is a huge assumption. We don't know. I don't know enough. Maybe, Grace, you do about the history of it. But let's say it was created in good faith. And you could imagine people debating 20 years ago when it was created being like, oh, this is a step forward. But since the Rooney Rule was instituted, we have less black head coaching candidates than we do when the rule was instituted. And then you have this situation where these people are being paraded out for phony interviews and where they feel like they're being delegitimized in the process. So I think I'm not comparing this to the Supreme Court thing because I think it's different to actually pick somebody for their race than to only interview them. So I'm not trying to mix the two. But I do think this is notable to say sometimes there are unintended consequences to these things. Here's how it compares to the Supreme Court. And I'm guessing probably compares to the employment experience of people of color all across the country and the interviewing experience, which is not with this Supreme Court pick, but how many other Supreme Court picks, cabinet picks, uh, you know, running mate selections, have there been four show interviews 
of people of color when they were put on a list, put on a short list, even when likely they were never going to be chosen. Right. And and then that's how it relates. But then on top of that, like you're right, it it has made it worse. And the reason it's made it worse is because it's made the the finish line interviewing. The offensive coordinator for the Kansas City Chiefs, Eric Bieniemy, has been the offensive coordinator for the last four years of no shit, the greatest offense in the history of the game of football. That's not even really debated at all. And he gets a ton of interviews every year. And then he returns to being the offensive coordinator of the Kansas City Chiefs instead of the head coach. And everybody in that organization is like, it is ridiculous that this guy is still our offensive coordinator. And it ain't for any other reason. I mean, you, you were out of reasons. Eric Bieniemy, I think, is one of the more interesting cases because the Kansas City offense is absolutely undeniable. And yet you will hear people over and over again be like, well, I mean, but Andy Reid. Yeah, they say the head coach, the white guy, he must call the plays. And then last week when we lost, when uh, our offense didn't do well in the second half, what did people say? They said, maybe we should move on from Eric Bieniemy. Like, that's how systemic racism works. I support that, by the way. I I support (laughs) moving on from Eric Bieniemy. You're tired of losing to it. Yeah, yeah. Well, where where I want to end this segment is just to remind people that you know this is about the fact that some things that you don't think are political are actually very political. And that's because politics has become a part of everything and because politics is reflected in everything. So, yes, this is us for a moment talking about what's going on in the NFL. But really, it's about what's going on in the American workplace. No different than when we talked about uh, the NFL mandating vaccinations and how that was massively increasing the amount of people in the NFL who were getting vaccinated and how that was a model that could be taken to the rest of the workplace in America. If you look at the experience that Brian Flores is describing, it is exactly the right argument for why there should be a black woman on the Supreme Court of the United States. And when you are in a conversation with someone about this who is very likely a sports fan, and my goodness, if they are, for instance, a Dolphins fan, you should absolutely pivot to the Brian Flores conversation and to use something to relatable to make the point that this is happening in all parts of our society has been for over 200 years. And, you know, this is not just a political thing. This is what it's like to get a job if you're a person of color. Not only is it no secret that I am a big believer in counseling and therapy, I literally have a book coming out in July about the way that counseling and therapy changed my life for the better. So you're probably not surprised uh, to know that one of our sponsors is BetterHelp. Uh, We are big believers in this sponsor. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. It's convenient. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. Not a crisis line, not self-help. Professional counseling done securely online. Yeah, and you'll never have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room or take time out of your day to travel to an office ever again. It's convenient, it's professional, it's affordable. And if you want to start living a happier life today as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash M54. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash M54. So yesterday I got a text message from my neighbor, Jason, uh, with a picture of his athletic greens. Uh, You have heard me mention him in ads before where I said that we were uh, trick-or-treating with our kids in Halloween. And he was like, hey, like, are you legit into athletic greens or is it like an ad for the podcast thing? And I was like, oh, man, let me tell you. But no, absolutely. It's not just an ad thing. Like we are believers in this. You know, we've had a lot of listeners who we know have become much healthier as a result of this. But one of them includes my neighbor now. 
I have an inexhaustible amount of time to talk athletic greens. When you take athletic greens, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. And the special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery focus, and aging really everything. And so to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash majority. Again, it's athleticgreens.com slash majority to take ownership over your health and pick the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. All right, well, it's time for Road to the Midterms, and I'm super excited to introduce uh, my former congressman, Max Rose. Uh, he used to represent uh, the 11th Congressional District in New York, which uh, includes Staten Island. It's actually mostly Staten Island. And uh, Max is such an accomplished young guy. He received the Secretary of Defense Medal for Outstanding Public Service, which is the second highest award presented by the Secretary of Defense to non-career federal employees. And he was in the U.S. Army as a platoon leader in combat and war in Afghanistan. He was wounded on duty and awarded a Bronze Star and a Purple Heart. He is running for the 11th Congressional District seat again. And with that, Max, tell us a little bit about Staten Island. Like, this is a district that was that is flipped. This is a true uh, swing district. Uh, give us a little bit of that history, because I think this is almost like a this is almost an extinct concept in America to have a district that has this kind of politics. You know, Staten Island about 500,000 people. And what's fascinating about it is it is uh, extraordinarily representative of the United States. One of the most representative counties of the United States of America, socioeconomically, demographically. Uh, and it, it is definitely uh, a borough and a congressional district that has tilted both ways, uh, albeit voted more consistently Republican than Democrat. But in many ways, though, what when you think about the divide between Republicans and Democrats, what's fascinating philosophically is it's not often centered around a pro-government, anti-government discussion. And that, that, I think, is actually illustrative of the political conversation today in America. We're not looking at this take government out of my back pocket dynamic any longer. In fact, what I think the conversation is now about uh, more frequently than not is how do you intend on spending government resources and how do you communicate with me culturally? And I really disdain the what's the matter with Kansas sickness that has taken over the Democratic Party where, you know, how more often than not, you know, you someone will come up to you and say, well, I just don't understand why people don't vote for their economic self-interest. You know, when someone on the Upper East Side votes for a Democrat who potentially wants to raise their taxes, we call that enlightened. So it, I think it's largely ridiculous for us to criticize someone who, who does the same on the other side of the aisle. But what I do think is fascinating, though, is how much comes down to a sense of, do I trust you? And would I be proud to vote for you? And, and policies come secondary to that. You know, voting in America has become less an act of self-interest and more an act of self-expression. And how do you then take that and message in 2024? Like one thing I noticed about you in 2018 was that you were super populist before 
most Democrats were sort of onto this in the sense that I remember these ads, your, your previous opponent, Dan Donovan, you were hitting him on his ties to the pharmaceutical industry. I think that was one of your strongest closing arguments, if I remember correctly. And, and how are you upgrading that now in this era where you ran in 2018 when Trump was in power and, and also the Republicans were largely in power? So you're running as a challenger in every sense of the word, whereas now you're a challenger again for the seat, but Democrats are in power. So in some ways, there's a record you have to defend for Democrats. Sure, sure. So there's a few different points there in that question. You know, one is I remain a firm believer in what I've called for a while centrist populism. I, I do really look forward to the day where one can just say I'm a Democrat and that means something that is bold as well as unifying and conducive with winning a majority of House congressional seats. We are nowhere near that yet. And that's a failure of the Democratic Party. It's also a failure of these incentives that our party politics is riddled with today, where conformity is not necessarily rewarded with more social media presence and small dollar donors and, and so on and so forth. But I, I digress a little bit. You know, when you think about populism, I think that it is an immoral, unifying, inclusive populism. What it really centers around is giving, make, ensuring that there is a robust security net and that people have a fair and fighting chance. And we have a system that centers around the working class and a model that centers around continually enlarging the middle class. So yes, I, I, that, that, that is what my politics and what I believe the entire Democratic Party's politics should center around. What, what I think that we need to really centrally improve upon is not looking down on the pain that people are feeling, not making it into an intellectual exercise, but rather saying that, listen, if you really care rightfully so about skyrocketing food prices or gas prices, then I, yes, I will tell you about how important it is that we transition to a net carbon neutral economy by 2040. But I'm also going to tell you about how we're going to take it to OPEC, how we're going to tap into the Strategic Petroleum Reserve so we can address immediate pain as well as show that we have plans for long-term policy solutions. Those two are not mutually exclusive. And so, Max, uh, you talked about voting as an act of self-expression. It's hard to imagine a place in America that doesn't that has more emotional conversations around race and law enforcement than Staten Island, you know, a district that has tons of cops, firefighters. My grandfather from Staten Island was a cop. And you took a big hit in 2020 uh, when you participated in a protest for racial justice. And a lot of people criticized you for that. I think some people said that that was a contributing factor to your loss. I, I'm not quite sure. But one thing I could say is that I was in your district the day after the election, and I was shocked at the sort of just change of tone I was feeling in the district from the 2018 to the 2020 election where I saw hand-painted anti-Max Rose signs. <laughs> like a hand-painting like is like, like that takes time and, and ex effort. There was a clear shift in, like I would say, like the magnitude of the emotional response there. And obviously there was a shift in the votes. Like, what's your sense about what happened there, what changed, and how you think about this this really fraught question of race and, and the intersection of law enforcement as well on Staten Island and maybe what it says about the country as a whole and how Democrats should communicate heading into this election? My participation in the March for Racial Justice that was 
an extraordinarily peaceful march that was not a march for defunding, that was organized by young people, many of whom young people of color on Staten Island, so that they could have their voices heard and work towards a, a more just hometown as well as country. And then that march was uh, basically subjected to $20 million of negative ads that said Max, Max Rose marched with them. Uh, the rioters, the looters, he supports defund. It was a whole series of lies that, you know, when you step into the arena as an, ele- as an elected official, like there's an acceptable amount of uh, bullshit that you have to incur. But what really was so upsetting is that they, this ripped apart the community. And it set us back on our efforts to achieve safety for all and justice for all. But I think one of the biggest uh, mistakes that we've made in terms of our reading of 2020 and the defund movement and the backlash uh, from law enforcement communities and so on and so forth is to think that this is something, that this is a new dynamic. There is an age-old tale of the, the question of two, two separate questions. One, do you think that institutions of law enforcement can be reformed? Do you believe in them? Or do you think that they are lost causes that must be abolished? I believe that at the essence of the defund movement, which I oppose, is intellectually speaking this notion that the only way to change law enforcement positively is to sap it of its resources. Otherwise, it will exist as some unjust racist institution. I wholeheartedly, abjectly disagree with that. But then on the opposite side of the spectrum, there's this also age-old dichotomy of do you blindly back men and women in uniform or not? You know, the only person that I blindly back is my wife. I mean, it's so I I am, of course, of the ability uh, of the belief that when individuals step over the line, they need to be held accountable, that no institution to include law enforcement agencies are perfect, and that we have to always be striving to make our institutions more accountable, more just, and more effective. All I can do is, one, dis- try to s- dispel lies head on. And Jason, you probably remember this too, downrange, like this feeling of, man, you're out there outside the wire and those echelons above you don't understand what you're going through. And then when something happens that you believe is a mistake, they're going to try to chuck you under the bus. Law enforcement is undeniably feeling that pressure every day. I'm sensitive to it. And I think we have to have public policy that is sensitive to it. That doesn't mean that you also don't have accountability measures in place. I think both sides of this debate actually feel that way, that, you know, the people in power don't understand what we're going through. Like Ravi and I are uh, just, we like you. We don't always agree with you on everything, but uh, I think Ravi, I can speak for both of us by saying we, we like Max and we, uh, we just think Congress will be better with Max in it. Yeah. And I could say I am aware of, of his field and I'm strong supporter of Max Rose and Max, I'm going to, I'm going to send you off with two questions. And this is really important. Number one is outside of like people you're related to in this district, I need you to Think about and tell us who your favorite constituent is. And she listens to this podcast, and so don't get this one wrong. Uh, and number two is, how can we support your campaign? First of all, your mother is undeniably my favorite constituent. And, you know, look, I, I, I really just appreciate the ways in which both of you, and I'm a big fan of the pod and a big listener, you guys actually look at politics as an art form. 
and I can't just tell you as a, as a student of politics and of a, as a lover of this field that to, to actually hear uh, two individuals who you know, view it that way and do deep dives in that manner, I'm just so appreciative of that. So th- thanks for having, for having me on. It really means a lot. Thank you, Max. As always, you can leave us a voicemail uh, to let us know about a topic uh, or an argument that you'd like us to address. It's 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Max is at MaxRose4NY. So MaxRose and then for New York, but the number four, then NY on Twitter. Grace is at Grace Lynch 8 on Twitter. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, and Adesua Agbanayo. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, this is Harry Lickman, former United States attorney, current L.A. Times legal affairs columnist and creator and host of the Talking Feds podcast, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day, from voting rights. Voting in our country has a specific racial connotation and a racial history, and one in which it has been fundamentally about moving away from exclusion and at a snail's pace. To the January 6th Select Committee. We're going to see almost every actor who's culpable in this refuse the subpoena. To U.S. national security and foreign relations. I served in the FBI in the aftermath of 9-11, and I've seen what happens when there's boots on the ground. To anything and everything at the Department of Justice. The hardest thing about coming into the Department of Justice, it's not like everything hits reset. There are court proceedings and investigations that are all midstream, and you don't control when you get to make a decision on those. To hear roundtable discussions with the country's most prominent voices from government, journalists, and law. Follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva Lucas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.